This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Talk to me, Goose. <laughs> how is the West Coast right now? Hey, man, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Living in the city of angels. It's beautiful, man. You know, <laughs> I, I hear a lot of people talking about how excited they are about spring, but it's been spring for me since November, man. Hey, I I don't even know why I asked about the weather because that was a distraction from what I really wanted to say, which is I'm so proud of you that you started this conversation by a Top Gun reference. <laughs> I'm amazed that you that you are willing to do that considering how much you didn't seem to like the movie when I exposed you to it for the first time. Well, you know, Top Gun, it's it's like all of the great it's like all of the great works of art. Like you take for instance uh Dave Chappelle and the Rick James skit. The first time you see it, you're like, "What is this nonsense?" And then, you know, after you watch it about 20 or 30 times, you start <laughs> to realize the brilliance. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my problem. I watched it so many times in my childhood. Well, welcome, uh, TK. I'm here with TK Coleman, the education director for Praxis, or as he would pronounce it, education director. And uh, <laughs> TK, uh, always an interesting person to talk to about any number of topics. Today, we're going to talk about self-help, sports, and some lies. And I had to put the word some before lies to keep with my theme of three word or three phrase alliterative titles. So welcome, TK. Hey, man, it's, it's good to be talking to you. All right. So let's start with self-help. Um, mm -hmm. I, though I am really passionate about finding ways to improve my own life, to optimize my productivity, to discover my goals, to, to know myself better, to get better at achieving those goals, figuring out what habits work for me. Like I, most of my life is focused around doing that for myself and attempting to try to help others do the same. Yet when I hear the word self-help or heaven forbid, if I walk into the self-help section of a bookstore, I want to throw up. Help me understand why. Why do I have such an aversion to self-help? Oh boy. Well, you know, I think when it comes to anything related to self-help philosophy and motivational psychology, the cultural forces that shape our thinking around that subject are strong. So for instance, if you tell someone, hey, I want to be a motivational speaker, tell me what person are they going to compare you to? Just who's the first person you think of? Matt Foley from the Saturday Night Live sketches. There you go. Or for <laughs> some people, for some people, it's uh, it's it's Stuart Smalley. Is that his name? Yeah, from Saturday Night Live. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Yeah. Dog on it. You know, people love me. And even even if you say, okay, you can't use any characters from a television show. Use a real person. You tell me who's the first person you think of. Motivational speaker. Uh, Tony Robbins. That that's about nine out of 10 people's answer. Here's the interesting thing. If you ever actually read Tony Robbins, or if you ever actually listen to Tony Robbins in probably the first 10 pages or the first 10 minutes, he's going to make it very clear that he's not a motivational speaker and that he believes that optimism without good ideas and firm execution is, is the, the basis of delusion. You know, and he talks about how he's all about helping people change their lives by changing their thinking, changing their, their behavior, changing their habits and so forth. So a, a lot of the views on self-help, 
just to start things off. I don't think they come from engagement with self-help literature, because obviously the people who feel this way aren't the ones that are spending their time and money reading self-help books, going to self-help seminars. A lot of these views come from things like watching SNL episodes, listening to people who don't really read self-help, or just basing your, your decisions on, on, on stereotypes. So I, I do think that is part of the problem. That, that doesn't answer the question completely, but I do think that's part of the okay. problem. And All I, right. yeah. let, let me throw a counterpunch. Yeah. Um, in my defense, in defense of those who cringe when they hear the word self-help or, or see the titles of some of the, the books in those sections, um, I won't say all, but many, if not most of the people I know who are openly fans of self-help are not the kind of people that I necessarily want to be. Um, there's there's a reason for some of the stereotypes, right? The conference junkie who will pay thousands of dollars to go to a self-help conference or hire a life coach or read all of the books. Um, they're often people who are, I almost feel like doing that as a way to avoid taking the necessary action of actually improving their lives, which is just plain hard work a lot of times. Or people who are, it just seems there's so much fluff that they just go to conferences all the time rather than actually acting on any of the information and improving their life. So there seems to be something about that genre that serves as a, rather than actually something that helps you help yourself, it serves as a replacement for helping yourself, just consuming a lot of self-help content. Right, right. Well, you know, I want to be true to that, but before I come to it, let me say, I also think that there are a lot of highly productive entrepreneurs and young professionals who are also into self-help. And I, you know, I've met a lot of these people. Like if you take a is this, is this one of those, is this one of those, yeah, I have a friend. I know a guy when really you're talking about yourself. <laughs> I have a friend of a friend who's Theor not like theoretically, that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I have met people who are really awesome and love self-help. <laughs> That's so funny, man. So, you know, when I, when I worked with American Express as a financial advisor, my first job out of college, almost everyone there, or at least a lot of the financial advisors I interacted with, they were into books by Zig Ziglar and guys like Og Mandino. And, and, and these guys are classic self-help writers, but they're not self-help writers in the, in the vein of, hey, believe that you're beautiful because you're beautiful. They're self-help writers in the vein of, hey, look, if you're gonna sell something, you gotta believe in it. You gotta believe in yourself, and let, let's take the time to do the work to do that. You know, um, so I, I think you do have different self-help writers. But but to your point about these stereotypes and about some of the people that are really into self-help, yes, I would agree with you that if you walk into a bookstore, you, you know, put my arguments on the shelf for a second and just walk into a bookstore, bookstore, and if you go to the self-help section, the first thing you're going to see are books that seem to be designed to make you feel good about who you are or how you look or something like that. It'll be like, you know, books like 21 Reasons Why You're Awesome. And even though I'm making this up, you probably can Google that and actually find <laughs> a bunch of stuff, right? Like, like, like eight reasons why you're really beautiful. And I think these, these articles and these books are definitely trying to meet a real need, but I can see how someone can look at that stuff, look at the book covers and look at the titles and think to themselves, well, this is a little little superficial. And, and, and I, I think 
there is some room to blame people in the self-help industry for this. So I'll accept that. For starters, many people who are into self-help or who work in the self-help industry are too quick to dismiss things from the category of self-help that actually belong there. So for instance, I think studying economics, studying ecology, studying history, studying Western analytic philosophy, all of these things um, can definitely be considered a form of self-help. That to, to understand how the world works in these ways can actually contribute to making you a better person and to empowering you to take charge of your life. And we, we often don't take those subjects seriously or when those writers give advice on self-help, we often don't take what they say seriously. I would consider almost everything that Mike Rose says to be a form of self-help, but you, you don't really see him being associated with that topic. So some of the challenges here are very similar to um, the challenges we see in the study of philosophy. There's a, you know, philosophy is often criticized for being impractical, irrelevant, not meaning anything to so, so it the, almost, the majority. It almost goes in the opposite direction where uh, people in the self-help genre might say, hey, if you don't have, you know, if you can't distill your content down into five ways to make your Tuesday better, um, then it's not really self-help. And you're saying, hey, look, you know, exploring, um, you know, topics in metaphysics or cosmology or history could alter your thinking and give you a perspective that is valuable in your day-to-day -day life, even if we don't word it that way. And philosophers, almost the opposite of the, the self-help um, advocates, I guess, might might be averse to any way in which philosophy is, attempt, people attempt to apply it to practical everyday life. And they would say, oh, well, it's not philosophy if it's actually like making your life better in a tangible way. Uh, it has to be far removed. Are, are you attempting to, to bridge these genres? I, I am. And I don't know who's responsible for this. I, I'm not going to pin it on the publishing companies or the self-help authors or the philosophy professors. But what I am saying is there, there definitely seems to be something going on in the culture where if someone is talking about philosophy in a way that's relevant to a lot of people, it doesn't get credit for being philosophy. So like if you if you succeed at doing the thing critics criticize you for not doing, you don't get to be considered you know, one of the people that are actually doing the thing. Uh, and I think there's something similar going on with self-help. I think a lot of times when people do talk about self-help philosophy intelligently, then we just don't count it as self-help. And so it's kind of like this, you know, perpetual cycle of if you're talking about self-help, you're being superficial. But if you're not being superficial, then by definition, you're not talking about self-help. And I think that is analogous to philosophy, right? Like if you're talking about philosophy, you're not relevant to society. And then you point out some philosopher that's like solving all sorts of practical problems, then we'll say, well, that's not philosophy. And it's like, well, you can't really win, right? You know, this is interesting because you you have, I, I mean, you're such a voracious reader of pretty much any topic and you, you find some value in almost everything. And so you've been, you've been interested in and reading a lot of things that would probably be labeled self-help um, for a long time. And I've always been kind of, you know, I'll let me read my you know, economic theory and, and uh, you know, philosophy, whatever else. And, and that's good enough for me. But I have almost snuck in through the back door against my against, I don't say against my will, but uh, without knowing it into sort of the self-help genre as popularly defined. I remember a year and a half ago, and I don't remember if you were recommended it to me or someone else in reading um so it started with the sort of theoretical economic um, analysis of entrepreneurship 
as sort of a concept and then looking at it historically and then looking at the lives of some entrepreneurs. And I came across this book, How They Succeeded by Orson Sweat Martin. And I mentioned it to you and you knew who he was right away um, because he was kind of in a, I don't know, like an early self-help genre, probably alongside some, some other people like Napoleon Hill, who I then stumbled into as well because he was doing a profile of Andrew Carnegie and Carnegie challenged him to go research successful people and write a philosophy of success to do what philosophy does, which is to observe things and then try to draw general abstract principles from them. Um, things that are not unique to that situation alone, but which apply uh, more broadly and, and to essentially create a philosophy of success. Are there concrete, you know, are there consistent principles that all these people in their very different situations have employed that have brought about their success? And, um, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, I would never have gone and read Napoleon Hill, you know, even his popular titles like Think and Grow Rich, like the title itself feels cheesy to me. It feels like this mystical, like power of positive thinking and rainbows and puppy posters. Um, but when you actually read kind of the, the history of this genre, I think it's just really inquiring people asking really good questions. Is there anything generalizable about success? Can we create a philosophy of success? Uh, so the genre, I don't know, maybe was redeemed in my mind a little bit through, through those explorations. You know, it, it's funny because uh, of, of all things I'm thinking about right now, as you say what you say, there's a key and pill skit about about hip hop. And in this skit, they start off with one of the actors playing this obviously intelligent rapper who is rhyming about all sorts of socially conscious issues. And then like in the middle of his rap, another guy interrupts him and he just starts talking about all this superficial stuff. And, <laughs> you know, everybody crowds around him and just embraces him and loves what he's doing. And, and, and the other rappers just sort of like, what the heck is going on? And then he tries to go back into his sort of like sermon style preachy rap. And then the other guy just dumps back, you know, jumps back in and starts talking about all this other stuff and he gets all the fanfare. And, and, and you know, if you talk to people that are, that are hip hop fans, there's a common thing that goes on. You know, there are a lot of hip hop artists who are talking about a lot of very intelligent stuff. They're, they're writing really profound lyrics, but no one really knows about who these people are because the ones that are getting marketed, promoted and advertising, the ones that are easy to sell tend to be the ones that are talking about things that are easily easy to criticize. And I think you see that a lot in self-help, a lot of the stuff that's pushed to the front a lot of the stuff that's marketed, you know, a lot of the stuff that easily makes the bestseller list, it, it's the stuff that's highly vulnerable to criticism because in, in order for people to sell that stuff, they often appeal to, you know, uh, the seemingly superficial desires of the masses. So in, in order to get a lot of people interested in self-help, publishers will appeal to things like, hey, don't you want the bling? Don't you want the diamond necklace? Don't you want to be rich? You know, and that 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 takes you know that's what gets a lot of people interested and whether that's right or wrong i think that's a lot of the stuff that gets pushed to the front and shapes the image of the industry and yeah, sometimes I, that's unfortunate no and i think removing right and wrong from the equation is really valuable and to say look it doesn't let's just pretend that there's no you know moral uh condemnation or approval to what's happening in a particular industry or market let's just assess what's happening and see if there's any reasons that are understandable. And I think there will always be a market 
for telling people things that they already want to hear um, that probably exceeds, at least in the short term, uh, the market for telling people things that they know they need to hear, but they don't want to hear. Um, so, I mean, there's always going to be a market for, hey, everything you're doing right now is just fine. And if you buy this, uh, it will tell you why, or it will turn all of your current habits into something even more valuable. But you really won't have to do anything that hard. You know, this is like the magic diet pill, whatever. Um, there's always at least a superficial one-time market for that type of stuff. And so you see new versions of it over and over again. Whereas, hey, let me sell you some advice that will make you feel like you've been making bad choices most of your life. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, uh, that's a little bit more of a challenge. All right. I want to transition. Complete break into sports. Now, I love sports and so do you, but I'm going to take the uh, position of a critic of sports and I'm going to tell you all the things that are stupid about them and I want you to defend sports and the time and energy and attention that you devote to them as a fan. You, you game? Yeah, that sounds fun. All right. So really, I mean – you're you're watching a bunch of people in the case of some sports like football at least um, probably cause themselves long-term brain damage uh, risk physical injury um, you're getting all hyped up and emotionally invested in something that has no bearing on your actual life or happiness uh, you allow yourself to do things that you would never want to do in a real life situation like yell curse words at the referees or actually wish for bad things to happen to the opposing team um, which is not, you know, speaking of self-help genre, which is not really a, a very creative, productive mindset. Uh, it's kind of nasty and vindictive. You are giving in to the worst elements of humanity, the things that we, you know, are are hopefully uh, trying to evolve out of, the tribalistic elements that say, just because someone lives nearer to me, they are morally superior. Just because this sports team is from my hometown I want them to win no matter what. I will make excuses for their bad behavior. I will justify them. I will praise their players when they're dirty and call them gritty. Uh, and I will condemn other players even when they're not dirty and pretend that they are. Um, I will believe things that are clearly untrue, like the calls always go against my team more than they do the other team, etc. Is this, Is this not kind of a worst case example of all of the things that we're trying to overcome as humans in light of all this, how do you depend defend your love of sports and the amount of time mm -hmm. you devote to it when you could be doing more creative, productive things? Sure. I got to ask a quick clarification question first. Are, are we talking about how people respond to sports or how people respond to their jobs? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't quite understand your, your question. Well, I mean, is, is this when, one of those times when you're trying to tell a joke and the punchline gets fuzzy? No, no, I stopped doing that. But <laughs> seriously, if I listen to the description, apart from the times where you use like sport terminology, like the word sports or the oh. word team. Oh, so like, it, it, OK, okay it, go ahead. It, 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 it sounds like a pretty accurate description of how the unhealthy manner in which many people approach their professional lives. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they, they allow themselves to get worked up over stuff that really doesn't matter that really doesn't have anything to do with, with success right. or they choose what to they pick, truly want out of to, life. To pick teams and to, to see it as a zero-sum game. Uh, right. All these things that, that we would agree are pretty detrimental to uh, human you know, fulfillment and happiness. 
why are you willing to defend and indulge in sports to the level that you do? Well, so I, I want to stick with this point for a second about jobs because one unique experience I've had in, in my work as a financial advisor, in my work as a life coach, in my work as a corporate trainer, and just in my work as a really great friend who has been an anchor for many people that I know, I've had an experience of talking to a lot of people about their jobs. And, and these sorts of habits and attitudes are prominent there as well. So when people go to work, this happens very often. They treat people that aren't actually enemies as if they were enemies. They, they divide themselves into cliques and into teams, and they treat people that are not a part of their clique as if they're evil or as if they're bad. They say nasty things about them, and they're not even pretending. They're, they really mean the nasty things they say. They really feel the nasty things they, they feel, and they get, they get themselves wrapped up in all sorts of unhealthy dramas. Now, would anybody use that? as an argument against going to work, as an argument against having a job. I don't think so, I hope not. What, what we would probably point out is that it's possible with anything in life, whether it's a job, whether it's having a child, whether it's being married, whether it's starting a business, no matter what you're doing, it's possible to have an unhealthy relationship to that person or thing. Uh, and, and sports is no exception to that. So, all right, all right, hold so, on, so, though, hold so, on. But if you let go of that in sports, what's left? What's left if you don't care about who wins or loses? You don't just watch it for the beauty of the performance. Well, well I, I don't think caring about who wins or loses is, is, is unhealthy at all. But, but before I defend sports, I just want to concede the point up front so no one mistakes my defense for this, that, yes, there are people that have an unhealthy relationship to sports, there are people who involve themselves in sports in a way that's unhealthy. There are people that drive themselves to therapy because they take things too far and they forget that it's a game. So, so let's just acknowledge that, right? Because a lot of people just jump into the defense too quickly. Let's acknowledge that that does happen. But let's also be real about the fact that that happens with everything from reality TV to working a job that you're not exactly thrilled about. But in terms of what good can come out of sports, well, first of all, one of the things you said in your criticism was – this, this is something that has like nothing to do with your happiness. I, I think that that assumes that happiness is objective, that quality of life is, is, is something that's universal. Each person has to decide for themselves what they're into and what enhances their quality of life. No, no matter who you are, there's someone out there that can be highly critical of how you spend your money and use your time. If, if you buy a lot of shoes or if you buy a lot of books, or if you spend money on TV, or even if you spend your time building business businesses, there are people that have different priorities and different preferences, and they're going to look at you as wasting your time and money. So there's nothing you can do with your life that's going to convince the entire world that what you're doing is important or significant. But for people who actually watch sports, not for the people that stand on the outside and criticize people who watch sports, they, they actually do gain a lot of happiness from watching sports. And one of the great stereotypes about happiness is that in, in order to be really fulfilled when you do something, you have to feel good all the time. But, but a, a lot of the recent studies in positive psychology show that the people who are most fulfilled are not the people that indulge in lots of immediate gratification, but they're people that put themselves through challenges. They're people that have to overcome obstacles, people that have to creatively solve you know, problems and so forth. And sports whether we're participating in them or watching them, they give us an outlet for, for doing that very thing. Sports give us an opportunity to, to set goals, to, to dream of, of, of results that are important to us, 
to root for people, to overcome challenges, to watch people demonstrate greatness by overcoming challenges. Uh, There's also a huge social benefit to playing sports. I often say that sports is just a way for men to say, I love you to one another without being too direct. You know, like, (laughs) like, like if you watch what people are actually doing, again, you got to listen to what the fans say about themselves. Hey, not can I can I inter- can I interject real quick before you move too far from it? Your point about getting fulfillment and enjoyment out of something, even though you may not have the outward appearance to others of uh, happiness or a smile, um, that that really resonates with me. You know, I'll be watching a game, uh, you know, watching the Lions or something, find some masterful way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and Heather, my wife will walk by and and see me and and see my frustration. And sometimes she'll say something like, why do you even do this to yourself? Do you even enjoy it? And she assumes because I'm not smiling, I'm not getting benefit or having a good time. Whereas I'll say to her, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing at this moment. This is the most enjoyable thing I can think of given all the alternatives currently in front of me. I am truly having a good time. And and for her to understand that I had to, I was like, okay, all right, look, she was like, whatever. I said, look, when we go trick or treating with our three kids, our oldest and our youngest are smiling, having a great time wandering around. Our middle child, she's five. She has no smile on her face the whole time. I mean, she is really intense. She's running from house to house. She's grabbing candy. She's, and you'll say, are you having a good time? And she'll look at you, stare at you with like very intimidating eyes and say, yes. <laughs> and, and I believe her. Um, but she's very stressed and intense about getting to every house and getting the maximum amount of candy because that goal, that struggle is what makes it a good time for her. So I think there's a lot of value in just acknowledging that. Um, even, even the anger that we feel and frustration in, in sports, that's kind of part of the enjoyment we get out of it because it's not easy. It's not easy to be a sports fan. And in fact, sports fans will often criticize you if you're only an, a fan when it's easy, if you're a fair weather fan. Oh, a- absolutely. And, and you see this in other areas of life. Like every person has the ability to relate to this. We just have to find the example that's right for them. Like what teacher, for instance, hasn't come home at least one day out of the year just totally exhausted, complaining about how hard their job is and how hard it is to get through their, through to their students. And if you stop them and say, why do you even do this? Why do you put yourself through this? They'd say, because I love what I do. I love the possibilities of what I do. Or, or look at people when they watch movies, right? Like people watch a movie and maybe it's a murder mystery or maybe it's a, a tearjerker like The Notebook or maybe it's, you know, like a suspense film. Like, People are reacting to the movie by crying over a character that died or over a love relationship that didn't happen. People are going, no, 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 don't kill them. They're at the edge of their seat, stressed out. If you stop someone in the middle of that film and say, hey, 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 why are you putting yourself through this? If you're so stressed out about this character dying, or if you're so upset about the possibility that your favorite criminal here might get caught, or if you're so upset that this guy was rude to that girl, like, hey, wh- why put yourself through this? I mean, I'm sure that person will say, hey, you don't get it. Like, that's not the point. So so are you, are you saying then that uh, sports is valuable because it's a form of escapism, like watching a movie? Or do you think there's more to it than that? I, I, I think there are some elements that are in common, but just like with watching a movie, I think there's something entertaining about being part of a narrative, about being part of something that involves moving towards a goal, overcoming challenges, and, and, and tying your identity together with that. I just think 
there's something exciting. And, and if you look at the way people, because one of the critics criticisms you pointed out was the way sports fans attack other athletes or, or fans of other teams. Now, if you're looking at this from the outside and you see people hating the Yankees or hating LeBron James, it's easy to think, oh my gosh, these people are gone, have gone too far. But, but if you actually become a part of sports culture, you'll see that although there are always people who go too far, most people who are involved in sports, they do this, it's part of the fun. So like, I'm a Chicago Bulls fan, and when Derrick Rose was injured, all of my friends who know I'm a Bulls fan called me and, and teased me about that. Like, like they were all too happy to let me know that Derrick Rose was injured. Or, you know, during Michael Jordan's heyday, most of my friends hated Michael Jordan and they would always tease me about it or, or like always, you know, complain about him. But as soon as the guy retired, what did everyone do? They said, oh, I respect him. He's the greatest ever. Like even the people that hated him. Um, I, I respect LeBron James. I think he's an amazing fan, but it's fun to root against him and be a part of a rivalry between Chicago and Cleveland. So people who actually do this, they, they do it with a different kind of understanding. Do, kind do you of realize like, you, you just said LeBron James is an amazing fan. Uh, you, you didn't even, you didn't even have the level of respect to call him a player. I like it. You, you know, a that, Freudian that, that, slip. I, I accept that. It's just not in my ability to do that. <laughs> <laughs> He's a fan of the game and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. So it's still not on record of me saying he's a good player. <laughs> okay, so, so you've provided a, a defensive sports essentially uh, by appealing to the subjective nature of value and that it can bring a lot of value and happiness in the same way that other forms of entertainment can. But I know that you personally have a much deeper relationship with sports than that. And you... You go to it uh, and and draw, I don't know, parallels from it or use it uh, to provide analogies in in really like genuine struggles in your life in a way that you've told me before, um, nothing else can really fill that role in quite the same way. Um, give me give me a little explanation of, of why that is. Yes. So I, I do think one of the most valuable reasons for watching sports is there are lessons about life, hard work, success, and teamwork, and personal development that are that are uniquely illustrated and embodied there. So one example of this is you see something in sports culture that is sometimes mirrored in the real world, but I, I don't think it's I don't think it's embodied as well. So in sports culture, there's a concept of getting on the field or the court and playing out of pride, playing out of respect, respect for the game, respect for your team, respect for tradition, respect for yourself, even when you know you're up against all odds. I remember a few years ago, and this is relevant now since we're in the middle of March Madness, but I remember a few years ago, there was a team that had to face, face up against Duke in the first round. And everybody in the nation knew that this team was probably going to lose by about 30 to 40 points. I'm sure the coach knew it. I'm sure all the players on the team knew it. And they showed the coach in the locker room talking with his players before the game. And even though I am sure this coach knew that his team stood no chance against this Duke squad because he knows basketball much better than I, when you look at the speech that he gave to his team, he didn't lie to them. He didn't BS them. He didn't tell them anything that was untrue. But he looked them all in the eyes and he said, no one expects for us to win today. But you know what? Games aren't decided by critics. Games aren't decided by the statistics they show beforehand. Games are decided by what happens on the court. 
And when we go out there on the court, we're going to play with pride. We're not just going to step aside or lay down and let these guys have an easy route to the final four. We're going to give them something. We're going to make them remember us. We're going to get in their faces. We're going to play them for 48 minutes. And by the time he was done, he had his guys hyped up and they went out there and they lost by like 30 points. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting about the famous sort of locker room speeches and the inspiring moments? And there's so many different approaches. One is like, you know, we played like crap. We're better than that. Or well, you better prove to me you're better than that. Or, you know, there's all sorts of variations that can be really effective. And I think it's easy to watch that and say, oh, there's some masterful leadership techniques at play in that speech. But what you don't realize is it's based on a context that goes an entire season or several years. And that involved the way that that particular coach or player, um, you know, help to acquire the other players, the way that they practice, the other games they've been through. There's a level of credibility that has to be present in order for it to work. And not all inspiring speeches in a locker room work. Um, it depends on the moment and that, and it's a very delicate balance. If you lie to your players or try to tell them something that's obviously untrue, it's not inspiring at all and you lose credibility. But if you don't push them enough, right? Then you're not going to get as much either. And I think there's just a lot of really interesting um, things in there in terms of the long term, what you have to build to even be in a position to where your locker room speech is going to matter. Exactly. And if you look at the example that I just gave, people can look at that and say, well, TK, aren't you just arguing against yourself? Haven't you just shown that it doesn't work? And I would say, actually, it's the opposite. So the lesson to be learned there, and you see this uniquely embodied in sports, is that there are reasons for playing the game. There are reasons for fighting and taking on challenges. There are reason for, reasons for trying things that have nothing to do with winning. Sometimes you try things just because you know you have to. Sometimes you, you play the game because of the opportunity to discover important things about yourself. Sometimes you get out there and fight even though you know the odds are stacked against you because you have too much pride to quit and, 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 and let, let a loss happen on its own without putting forth any effort. And you, know, you see every year, there's always a story about some team that shouldn't have won that wins or some boxer that shouldn't have won that knocks out the champion. Or there, There's always this kind of story. Every single year, there's the story of an upset. But even beyond the possibility of upsets, I think one of the many lessons we learn from sports is that there are more reasons for pursuing a dream or taking on a challenge than having an easy victory or having a victory at all. And in the real world, if you look at the way we approach life, a lot of times we fail to step up and give our best when we're not convinced ahead of time that it's going to work or that we're going to win. And, and one of the things that I've taken from sports is just a sense of self-respect and pride that challenges me to give my best every day, no matter what I do, even if I know the odds are going to be stacked, even if I know the odds are stacked against me. And I think that's a valuable attitude to have. So, um, you know, I'm a, a big fan of economics and I've, it's, it's easy for people to look at the marketplace and to try to make analogies to sports, um, about, you know, how the different companies compete with each other, et cetera. And, um, a number of economists, uh, and I completely agree with them, are quick to criticize that and say, look, this is not a good or a helpful analogy because sports is a zero-sum exchange. One team wins, one team loses. It's binary. It's absolute uh, unless you're playing soccer, which doesn't really count. Um, that's, I'm sure people will criticize me for saying that. <laughs> a tie should never be possible. Anyway, um, <laughs> but 
and the marketplace, it's it's a series of win-win. Everybody, everything's voluntary, so you only engage in a transaction if you both parties agree that it benefits. Blah 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 blah. I completely agree with that, and I think we have to be careful about that. But one thing that I think is overlooked with sports is sports as a whole, or even a given sport as a whole. Take just one whole season, for example. It's not a zero-sum game. It's a win-win. It's a series of individual win-lose scenarios, a series of individual zero-sum games that add up to a process that is win-win. So take a particular rivalry. In any individual game, one team's going to lose, so it's zero-sum. But over the course of a 10-year span, a 15-year span, you know, the famous Lakers-Celtics rivalry is a win-win. It's a win for both organizations. It's a win for all the players involved. It's a win for all the fans. Anyone who follows sports would tell you that. Um, so I think that ability to, to gain those lessons in sports that you want to put everything into the moment and into the game and give it everything. And sometimes you'll still lose and it's zero sum and it's brutal. But that's only one game in a broader season, in a broader career, in a broader sport and history of sports that is always win-win if you keep at it. And I think that's a really valuable lesson that you don't want to say, Hey, look, man, it's only the regular season. It's only one game and not put your full self into it as a way to sort of protect yourself from, you know, the, the crushing blow of, of a possible defeat. But at the same time, you know, you want to put yourself all in, but also know it was just one game. It was just one zero sum game in a, in a positive sum experience overall. And I think that's a really important thing to draw from sports. Oh, man. And, and you raise another point that I think is valuable when talking about lessons to be learned in sports. And that's look at things within the context of a season or a playoff series. So when we have bad days, for instance, it's easy to treat that bad day as if it's final or it's easy to treat a problem as if this problem is the definition of my life. So I failed at something. So now instead of having a negative experience, I actually am a loser or I am a failure. And, and, and that's a very detrimental way of thinking. But one of the lessons you can learn from sports is that, hey, one play or one game doesn't determine your career. It doesn't determine the whole narrative. You can actually lose a game but still come back and win the playoff series. Or you can lose a playoff series, still come back next year and win the championship. Or you can lose a regular season game and still make the playoffs. You can miss a free throw and still win the game. Hey, you like, can, lose, a you can lose more championship series than you win and still be considered great. Right, LeBron James? Oh, that, was, that might be a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, I, I think about, to your point about the zero-something theme, I think about when Michael Jordan won his first championship, you can see the video on YouTube of him holding that trophy, just lying on the ground, crying for a long period of time, all the cameras in his face and people trying to get him to talk. And he's just in tears. Like, why does that moment mean so much for him? You can't separate the beauty of that moment from all the years before where the Pistons and the Lakers just and the Celtics just beat up on him and where he's this individual talent who's just constantly criticized for not being able to win with the team. And he's going through all of this self-doubt. People are comparing him to Ernie Banks. He's just going to be another Ernie Banks, a great Chicago superstar who doesn't find a way to win. And finally, he overcomes all of those challenges and wins. And what makes winning meaningful was that his failures, his losses were also meaningful. You can't appreciate success without the possibility of loss. Without the possibility of loss, it's not success. It's just, you know, your, your default state, you know? So something when people have to happened, yeah, yeah, it's just something that happened, you know, 
So, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. All right. So, <laughs> so give me a few minutes on the last topic. Some lies. Uh, we've talked about this before. You and I as well, uh, choose to believe some things that we know are not true in particular circumstances and moments because of the usefulness of those beliefs. So give me an example of some lies that you believe and why. Well, I believe that in order to be happy and successful, you have to give yourself permission to believe things that aren't mainstream. And you have to give yourself permission to believe things that you probably can't tell someone else to believe in good conscience, uh, which is why I believe when you talk to successful people, you ask them for advice, they're going to give you two, two sets of advice. They're going to give you the things that they feel comfortable giving you because they believe it works and you need to know it. And then there's this other category of advice that they're never going to tell you because they don't want to get a phone call from your parents if you act on that and it doesn't work out. So, um, <laughs> and, 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 and before I talk about this in terms of like just regular life, I can give you examples in the professional world. So, you know, I, something I actually had a, a medical doctor tell me is that when a person comes into the office and, and I'm not going to say who this person is, but when, when someone comes into the office and they're convinced that they're sick, you can't afford to just let them go without validating their belief that they're sick in some kind of way. Because for liability purposes, the last thing you want is to be held responsible for something bad happening to a person and you not doing anything about it. So I've been told that sometimes doctors will have people come into their office, they'll do a checkup, they will know for a fact that nothing is wrong with this person, but because this person believes they're sick, they will prescribe some antibiotic biotic for them or what have you just to validate that person's belief and make them feel better about it. Now, again, whether you think that's right or whether you think that's wrong, I have other examples of this from other industries where there are two sets of advice that people give. There is the advice they really believe um, and then there's the other stuff that they're just not going to tell you because they don't want to get sued or they don't want you holding them responsible. And I, I think if you want to be happy or successful, you have to have like Peter Thiel calls it secrets. He says successful people believe in secrets. You have to have some things you believe that you probably could never go on TV saying, hey, here's what you need to do to be successful. And obviously, if I told you what those were. Um, then they wouldn't be secrets for me. But I'll give you one example that's kind of in between. It's something that you couldn't tell someone if you were a therapist, but if you look at great leaders and great achievers, they do tend to have this kind of mentality. So if you look in sports, for instance, um, you have this mentality of taking responsibility for every loss. So let's say a LeBron James scores 30 points, has an amazing shooting game, and clearly to everyone who's watching the game, does everything right. But then one of his teammates misses free throws that could have won the game, and it's clearly his fault. And then they interview LeBron James afterwards, and LeBron says, it's on me. It's on me. And they're like, well, LeBron, like, clearly, you know, Kyrie Irving missed these free throws, and that's what cost you the game. And LeBron goes, nope, it's, it's, it's on me. It's, it's my fault. I'm the reason why, we're lo why we lost. Had I done what I was supposed to do as a leader, we wouldn't have been in the position to lose the game for that reason in the first place. Now, that, on the surface, that sounds absolutely crazy. Like, no, it's not your fault. It's your teammates' fault for missing those free throws, and you know it. And even if that's true, we, we saw an example of this with the uh, with the Super Bowl where they throw a pass when they only have half a yard to go for a touchdown. And, and what does Beast Mode say in an interview? He goes, no, we win as a team and lose as a team. He refused to throw his quarterback under the bus. He refused to say it was his quarterback's fault. 
He said it's our fault collectively as a team. Even though everybody in the nation disagreed with him and knew he was lying. Why did he say that? Well, because when you say what everybody else knows or thinks or wants you to say, you actually lose your power to make a difference. You lose your your power to change things. You get to be right. You get to feel better about yourself. But but now you're just a victim of a decision that somebody else made. But when you take it upon yourself to see reality as an environment where you're responsible for the things that happen to you, it actually allows you to think creatively about what you can do to change things the next time you're in that situation. And, and you know, Wayne, Wayne Dyer said something about responsibility that I really like. He said, responsibility does not equal blame. Responsibility is the recognition that you have the power to respond with ability. So one lie that great achievers believe is that they are responsible for the things that happen to them. And they're able to believe that without blaming themselves or beating up on themselves or condemning themselves for things that go that, that go wrong. And I just don't think that's an easy belief to spread. Yeah. And, and, and I'm very careful about preaching and, that and to it, people. Yeah, and it's probably in many instances uh, not a healthy belief to spread if you take everything on yourself and say it's all my fault all the time. There, there are obvious obvious problems with that. Yet, I found myself in the same position too because I, I sort of knowingly embrace that worldview at times when I find it useful to me. You know, if someone says to me, if I'm feeling stressed about a particular failure in business or a result that didn't come about uh, and something I'm working on, and there are many other variables that maybe my effort and work had nothing to do with it, and I'll tell myself, I've got to do better. This is on me. And if someone says to me, hey, man, it's not on you. Like, look, here are all the facts. I almost have this feeling like, stop right now. You can't take this away from me. I need this. I need this belief. I need to allow myself. I know that's not true. I already know that it's not really actually my fault. And I'm not going to let myself become depressed or be damaged by this. But I want to choose to hold on to this. I want to choose to take it personal without actually getting upset at any, you know, other people involved and and choose to put pressure on myself because it opens up a type of thinking that says what can I do if this is to be prevented in the future? And even if that thinking leads to nothing other than what I have done, uh, there's a chance that I will discover something. Whereas if I don't allow myself to, to believe in that lie that it was really my fault, um, sometimes I might not be able to access that kind of creativity. But but I agree with you. I mean, I I find that valuable myself, but I never give that as advice. I never say, hey, you should believe that everything that fails in your life is your fault. <laughs> you know, that sounds awful. And I, I, I shudder to think of the consequences, but um, oh, I, I would never, ever but tell I keep anyone it to myself, that. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's almost like when you ask yeah. somebody successful for advice, you want to ask them or, or for a specific instance, Hey, you know, what should I do here? You almost want to ask two questions. What should I do here? And like, not even what would you do here, but what did you do here? What did you do in that situation? And it's almost always the things they did that they would be ill-advised to recommend anyone else to do that set them apart and that made them unique. So um, yeah, I, I'm with you. All right, so we've talked about self-help, sports, and some lies. Now you're going to do a quick wrap-up and seamlessly connect these into a, a, a wonderful <laughs> whole. Totally artificially, totally forced. <laughs> I, I got to tie it up. How many words do I get? I don't know, man. Just as many as you need, but uh, in you know a minute or so. 
I would say, okay, self-help, sports, and lies. That in life, when you help yourself by... <laughs> I should make you do it in haiku. <laughs> when you help yourself by thinking creatively and competitively like the people who play sports, <laughs> you, will, uh, you will know which lies to believe and which lies to abandon. Uh, in your pursuit of success. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to work out a haiku in my head, but I think I got lost. Hey, that wraps it up. I love it. All right, TK, thank you again for joining me and look forward to the next time. Absolutely.